Welcome to Good Business, a weekly podcast to help you create a business that is good for people, planet, and the profit line. Hi, I'm Chris Edwards. I'm a serial entrepreneur. You may know me from my first business, Honeycombers, which is a digital lifestyle guide, providing you with everything you need to know to enjoy your local city. We operate in Singapore, Hong Kong, and Bali, and this year we're in our 15th year of operation. Or perhaps you know me as the founder of Launchpad, a community movement designed to support entrepreneurs who aspire to create conscious companies. On this podcast, we're going to explore the ups and downs of the entrepreneurial ride and understand how successful and clever innovators and business leaders bring people, planet and profit together to build better businesses. So what does it take to create a heart-led business? Join me and together we're going to learn how to create a good business. Before we do, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I am recording this podcast on, Bundjalung Country. And I pay my respects to the elders past and present, and I extend my respects to all traditional cultures. All right, let's get into it. Do you ever meet people in life that are such massive overachievers, they're actually difficult to like? Well, my next guest is absolutely an overachiever, but she is incredibly lovable. I think I fell in love with her over the course of this one-hour interview. Christine Amor Lavar is a Singapore-based philanthropist and adventurer, now an impact investor and on the board of Zero Waste. She's the mother of four children and she is a human rights and sustainability advocate. She's built a global career as a marketing and communications expert and a social entrepreneur intent on solving some of the world's most pressing issues. As a passionate champion of female empowerment and environmental conservation, Christine founded not one, but two award-winning nonprofit organizations, Women on a Mission and Her Planet Earth, to bridge these two passions. Both of these organizations take all female teams on pioneering expeditions with women on a mission, empowering and supporting women who've been subjected to violence and abuse, and Her Planet Earth, raising funds for underprivileged women affected by climate change. This chat today is just so wonderfully inspiring. And I suppose, you know, some of the things I think you're going to love is hearing about her journey and how a throwaway comment by a friend inspired her to change the direction of her life, how she used PR and branding to create her nonprofits, and how she even roped in the American Chamber of Commerce in Singapore to create her landing page because she didn't have a website when she was initially getting started. She also talks about the role of Uh, Philippine society and the role of women in that society and how that has influenced her. She's incredibly action-orientated, very humble, and just really inspiring and lovable. And she talks a lot and thinks a lot about what business can do to solve the climate emergency. Hi, Christine. So happy to have you on the podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Chris. I'm so looking forward to having a chat together. Yeah, Me too. I think we're in for a really juicy conversation. I so admire your journey. I mean, you are a true multi-hyphenate, a founder of multiple NGOs, a consultant, an author, an advocate, a mother to four. Is there anything you can't do? Oh, oh, there's so many things I can do. Uh, I have very long bucket lists. Um, But uh, but yeah, I, I definitely try to to grow and, and challenge myself along the way. So maybe that's why I've done a few different things in my life. I feel like you've created really the dream life, like thinking about, and, and maybe we can start there. Um, you know, maybe you can share with our listeners, uh, you know, your story and what you've done, but, you know, reading about you and researching you for this interview today, I, I feel like you've just created this dream experience-based life where you've had real impact and real change and and doing these wildly adventurous trips. So yeah, maybe you can share with our listeners, um, you know, your journey. 
Thank you, Chris. So first, firstly, thank you for asking me on the podcast. I was really honored to get your invitation. Um, and that's a big question you're asking me, but uh, of course it, it feels good to hear you say that, that you feel that in some way I've created a dream life, you know, and I'm very grateful for the life that I have uh, today, but it certainly wasn't, um, I would say, all by accident. There's been a lot of luck involved, but there's also been a lot of hard work behind it. So I'll start from the beginning, maybe. I was born and raised in the Philippines. Um, this is really the country that pulls at my heartstrings. Um, I spent the first of the first 18 years, 13 were spent in the Philippines. My mother's Fili Filipina, my father is French and Swiss. Um, and so in the middle of those 18 years, I spent five years in France, um, also growing up near Paris, and then came back to the Philippines, finished um, high school in the Philippines, did the IB diploma. And then I went to university in Japan. Uh, that was uh, not my idea. I was dreaming of going to Paris for university. And my father had different ideas. Um, he thought I, would, I should learn a different language. Um, and he thought Japanese uh, this was in the in the in the 90s, uh, so, uh, so I'm, I'm giving my, my age away a little bit. <laughs> um, so I went to university in Japan, um, went to Sofia University, a Japanese university in Tokyo, uh, took a business degree, business and economics degree, and did a minor in Japanese. It was an incredible uh, experience, very humbling. Uh, I had to learn Japanese from scratch because I hadn't taken it up in school. Um, growing up, I had I grew up with four languages. And, I, you know, the Philippines being an English-speaking country, uh, because it's an ex-American colony, we speak Tagalog as well. So my mom and, uh, insisted that we, we children learn Tagalog. Um, I spoke French at home because my parents spoke French together. My mother had, uh, had gone to university in, in France, so she spoke fluent uh, French when she met my father. And then I, I picked up Spanish. I, I studied Spanish intensively. So arriving in Japan, um, that was my fifth language. Not easy, uh, really from scratch. And then I ended up spending six years in Japan. So I did my four years undergrad, and then I started working in advertising, a very exciting industry, uh, for an American ad agency called McCann Erickson. Um, and then um, just to fast forward a little bit, so that agency was handling the account uh, for a company that I adored, Nike. Uh, and so I was able to meet um, the client uh, and that led to a job in the United States in Oregon. Uh, and that was a dream come true for me because growing up, I was so passionate about sports. I, I, I played um, multiple sports, but especially football or as the Americans call it, soccer. And so, you know, getting the opportunity to work at the world headquarters of a company like Nike was really uh, mind-blowing to me uh, at a tender age of 23. Uh, I arrived in Oregon, never had lived in the U.S., um, from a big city like Tokyo to a, quite a small town, actually. Um, Portland is a small uh, town of, uh, at the time, it was 1.5 million people. Uh, so not that small, I would say, but compared to Japan, definitely. And ended up working at first uh, on marketing initiatives that had related to Japan, so where I could use my Japanese. And then as they grew uh, their uh, Americas region, they, uh, which included Canada and Latin America, and they were signing up a lot of football teams, and they realized that was also my sport. They asked me to join the Americas region as the one of their youngest PR uh, public relations manager. So I was uh, in a company that I loved and worked very closely with the sports I loved, the sports I loved, football. As, uh, as they were acquiring assets all over Latin America, uh, including the Brazilian national team, uh, you know, traveling all over the, the region with my, my marketing team. So I was in marketing uh, with a fantastic group of people and then moved to, to France with them and then later on to Singapore. So I had many opportunities with Nike. I worked for them on and off about 11 years. Um, I left for a couple of years, went back to school in New York, did a, something a bit more creative, did an interior design degree, and then ended up working for a couple of years with Philippe Stark in Paris. Uh, and then rejoined Nike when an opportunity uh, came up in Singapore uh, to run their marketing here. So that's how I came to Singapore almost 17 years ago. And then I met uh, my current husband, uh, who is an entrepreneur, and he encouraged me to do things that were a bit more entrepreneurial. So I left Nike uh, around 2008, and I started a retail business. I had a Brazilian uh, boutique uh, in Singapore for about three and a half years on Orchard Road because I had done business in Brazil with Nike, So I, and I speak uh, some Portuguese as well. Um, so I started importing Brazilian clothing, and retail was difficult. It was not an easy business, very humbling again. Um, you learn a lot about people on, in terms of how they shop. 
Um, so sold that business after three and a half years, lock, stock and barrel, uh, didn't make much of a profit, but was quite happy to uh, escape and scratch <laughs> from that experience. And that, that's about the time I got into philanthropy. Um, and that is the, the time that I call my tipping point in my life. Um, I met uh, a mountaineer, a French mountaineer called Valérie Bofi who later became my co-founder of my first nonprofit, as she was about to climb Everest. I was picking up my children from the French school, and I bumped into Valérie, who was always a woman that attracted me because she had a very athletic um, demeanor about herself, how she, how she walked with purpose, and I was drawn to her, but I didn't know her very well. So I stopped and chatted, and she said, I'm going to be away for, for seven weeks. And I said, really? So are you going to France for a special holiday, I thought? And she said, actually, I'm going to try to climb Everest. And that just floored me. Um, you know, having gone through a divorce where I turned uh, a lot of my uh, energy to the mountains to gain strength, uh, I spent time climbing um, in the Alps and the Himalayas alone. Her telling me that she was going to climb, uh, try to climb Everest, and I had read many books about Everest, um, I knew how dangerous that was going to be, and she's a mother as well. She was a mother at the time already. And I remember coming home to my husband, and I said, you won't believe I met this woman. She's a mom, and she's going to climb Everest. And he could see my eyes were shining, you know. And I followed her climb very closely. I even got in touch with her husband, who uh, had a satellite phone, because at the very end, you couldn't communicate with her. She was using satellite phones, etc. And she summited Everest on the first try. And on the summit of Everest, she had the banner for a charity called Women for Women International that supports women survivors of war. And it said, bearing the flag for women everywhere. Um, and that really touched me, you know, to see her bravery and her defiance of fear, uh, to, to raise a flag for other women who had gone through so much. You know, survivors of war, they're some of the most marginalized women. I still get emotional when I tell this story, as I said. You know. But anyway, when she came down, she told me all about this beautiful charity. And I knew then and then that I had to support this. And this is how Women on a Mission was born, because together, and another partner, we set up Women on a Mission to take our first group of women to climb to Everest Base Camp, which is not the summit of Everest, but it is a, a very challenging climb up to 5,400 meters in Nepal. Um, and we did that together with a group of friends, nine of us, in 2012, so 10 years ago exactly this year. Um, and we ended up um, raising $150,000 for women survivors of war for this charity through, through two events, through our community. I put my marketing hat on and I wrote a press release called Women on a Mission to Reach Higher Ground. Uh, Straight Times picked it up. Uh, we got invited to a media corp for a radio interview. Uh, the, the girl who interviewed us, Michelle Martin, who's a well-known um, radio um, presenter here at the end of the interview said, I'm coming with you. Two weeks before we left, she joined us. She had, she barely had time to train, but she did so well. And this is how it started. So that's kind of uh, how women, my first NGO got set up, Women on a Mission. It's been 10 years and it's been 11 expeditions and over a million US dollars raised. We're all volunteers, by the way. Um, we don't pay ourselves anything. This is the business model that I chose with my co-founders. Wow. Wow. Um, and I was intrigued by your comments about, um, I suppose, growing up in the Philippines and the role of women in the Filipino society. Um, do you want to talk a little bit to that? Has that really shaped you and, and what you've ended up doing? So growing up, uh, you know, I grew up in a, in a very matriarchal um, society. So my grandmother, my Filipina uh, Chinese grandmother, lived till 101 and she was the matriarch of our family. She had seven children. My mom was her fourth. Um, and, and there was only one brother and all the rest of my mom's siblings were, were ladies. So I had very strong aunts, first of all, growing up around me who were all very entrepreneurial and opinionated and, um, you know, would, uh, would kind of create this atmosphere around us of these incredibly, um, you know, hardworking women. Uh, so around me, I saw that. And then in, in Philippine society, actually, uh, along with New Zealand, New Zealand and Australia, they are actually the country in, in Asia Pacific that has the, the, the most gender equal, uh, they are the most gender equal in terms of a society. So we've had two women presidents, uh, Corazon Aquino being one of my heroes. Um, and we have, ha and, and today we have many leaders in, in, in the corporate world, in politics, in even running haciendas, what we call haciendas or plantation estates. Uh, women are very much leaders in, in, in Philippine society. And so growing up, I saw that very clearly. 
Um, even though my father was probably the, was the main breadwinner in our family, but around me, I saw many women in business. And actually, even in my dad's company, uh, where he, he worked for a Swiss company in the Philippines, um, his head of sales was a lady. His head of marketing was a lady. So, yeah, so lots of examples. And then, of course, I saw a lot of inequality also. You know, the Philippines is one of the poorest countries in Southeast Asia. Um, so we, you know, I was very blessed to grow up uh, with parents who, who, who could afford a nice home and a good education for me. But I also saw a lot of poverty and it, it touched me very deeply. Uh, my mom always made us aware of, of the privilege that we had and tried to, you know, take us on, um, on projects with her around charitable um, initiatives always to, to, make, to make us understand that, that privilege comes with responsibility. So this is something that was in very early on in my life. But I also felt that I didn't really know what I could do to help. I mean, apart from supporting certain charitable initiatives, I felt very powerless. And maybe somewhere that was something that stayed with me uh, and, and resurfaced when the moment was right. I like to think it was that, that way, but it was certainly not a, a conscious plan that I would one day set up a couple of nonprofits. Um, my dream at the time, as I said, was working in sports. Um, you know, that was what I wanted to do early on. And tell me, how did her planet Earth come about? So it's a cute story, actually. So I bumped into a, a French girlfriend of mine who had um, just gone to Antarctica with Robert Swan, who is a, a polar explorer who's very well known. He's a British polar explorer, OBE for polar exploration, first man to walk to both, both poles. So she had met him and she had gone to Antarctica with a group uh, that he had organized. And when I met Sandra, her name is Sandra Maréchal, I had a drink with her at her office. Uh, I wanted to hear all about her trip to Antarctica. She was working for Facebook at the time. So I went um, to, on the rooftop of their building at the time to have a glass of wine on a Friday. It had just uh, r uh, rained and then it stopped and the sun peeked out a bit and there was a big rainbow on top of our heads. And it was so funny because as we were having a glass of wine talking about her trip, I said, I really want to go to Antarctica. It's always been my dream. Um, and then and then she said, let's go back. I'll go back with you. Let's go together. So we, we cheers. And, you know, she was so she said, you know, Christine, what you're doing with women on the mission. I only had women on the mission then. Um, there is such a strong connection with the environment. You, you don't you, you must do more research around it. You must realize that uh, women are actually the most impacted to climate change. And, and, and she was right. I did more research that weekend. And I realized, my God, you know, of the 70% of poor people around the world, there's one point, let's say 1.3 billion poor people, 70% are women. Anytime a crisis hits, not just violence and conflict and war, but climate change, women are most impacted, especially in Asia, where they hold the majority of the agricultural roles. So they are really uh, at, the, at the forefront of climate change. And the more I researched, the more I realized that we're also a huge part of the solution because of our strong connection with Mother Earth. And so that weekend with my husband, we brainstormed and he came up with the name Her Planet Earth because I thought I wanted to do something. You know, I, I, you know I'm somebody who likes to, to put a lot of action behind my initiatives. And I realized that, well, what can I do, right? So I said, I'm, I'm getting some good um, traction with women on the mission. Why not I do something like that because I enjoy it and I know how to do it well. But I'd, I'll put more of an environmental spin. And I didn't want to detract attention from the work we were doing with women on a mission, supporting women impacted by violence. Because I feel that nonprofits cannot be everything to everyone. And you have to be quite targeted and strategic when you do start movements. So I decided to create a similar sister entity called Her Planet Earth. And I called up Sandra and a few other girlfriends who I knew were really passionate about the environment. And I asked them to, to join me as founding partners. And, and then we started uh, planning expeditions as a way to raise funds. And I started knocking on doors of different um, charities that had an environmental focus. And actually, I wasn't very successful at the beginning because they're like, who are you and what do you want? Do we, do we, we don't even need you. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, it's funny. You want to you raise funds for charities, but they don't always just want anyone, you know, they, who are you, you know? So it took a while, but eventually I started getting uh, things organized as, as I do sometimes uh, with determination. I organized our first trip to the Philippines to an island in Sirgao before going to Antarctica. Antarctica was the second trip. 
and started raising funds for different nonprofits supporting women impacted by climate change or, or environmental NGOs that had programs in place that could help women either become more, um, grow for certain skills that could also contribute to helping the environment, like, for example, elephant sanctuaries in Africa, where we, our funds would go to support women uh, to get jobs to care for baby elephants, which are a huge part of the ecosystem, uh, baby elephants that were abandoned and, and, and rescued. Um, other funds went to agricultural programs. So, you know, as I, as I started developing Her Planet Earth, and it's now five years old, um, I learned more about those issues and how women were impacted and how some of the eco-friendly livelihoods could strengthen their, their own uh, security and resilience to climate change by being kind, but at the same time being kind to nature. So that's how the idea for Her Planet Earth started. So it's a separate organization with different partners. Um, we have different charity partners as well. We've raised about almost 700,000 US in five years. And I have a lot of traction with that charity because there is a growing demand and concern for the environment. So a lot of my teammates and partners are actually a bit younger than me. They're more millennials. Um, and they are really determined to find a way to to support these causes that help women, and there, and I'm, and a lot of our work is around the advocacy and the message around why are women so important to to mitigating climate change. So I do talks around that as well. Yeah, cool. And I'd love to know what's your strategy for creating a movement. Like it's it's a very bold thing to try and tackle or create. So how do you do it? So it's not very complicated for me. I realized that when you put effort around any kind of movement or initiative, you have to put effort every single day, even if it's a little bit, and it does add up to something because I've seen it happen. So for me, it's like you have to be sure that you want to do it, that it aligns with your values, you get people on board who are as passionate, you know, or even more passionate than you about it, bring them along the journey, uh, tell them why it matters to you, and then keep talking about it every day, doing something to build it every day, even, even if it's just reaching someone, being on a panel, talking about it, becoming an advocate for it, right? And, uh, and then before you know it, it becomes something bigger, we plan things, we plan events, we, we end up being uh, known for this advocacy, you know, um, but it takes an effort every single day. And anybody can start a movement. I talk to kids all the time uh, at schools. And, you know, if there's a cause they care about, I tell them, start it now. I mean, I wish I had started earlier. You know, it only took me a long time to get there because it happened by meeting Valérie, you know, at that little tipping point I had. Uh, but then you realize that when you look back, and it's been, as I said, 10 years with Women in a Mission, five years with Her Planet Earth, and we're still very grassroots movements, but it has suddenly slowly amounted to something. And it's... Um, and it has opened so many other doors for me um, in my consultancy business and my work um, and my involvement to have more of an impact. Yeah, yeah, great. I, I, like, I like that message and I think you're absolutely right, a little bit every day. This podcast is brought to you by Launchpad, a community movement for conscious entrepreneurs. If you're seeking a sounding board, advice, masterclasses, or maybe just looking for a network of people that are in your corner to support you, come to thelaunchpad.group website and check it out. We'd love to meet you. So tell me about your consultancy business. Yes. So I've actually been operating as a consultant for the last nine years. And it again, it happened by chance and maybe, maybe by chance, but also maybe because I was uh, working in areas that I was very passionate about. And when you're passionate about something, you tend to do a good job. <laughs> so nine years ago, after I came back from Everest Base Camp, um, I had met a lady who was going to come with us to Everest Base Camp. But unfortunately, when she trained, she injured her ankle. Um, and she kept in touch with us. The team came to our event, supported us, you know, bought some of the auction pieces. And she was actually a very successful uh, CEO a still very successful woman. Uh, she was the CEO of Temasek Trust, the philanthropic arm of Singapore's Sovereign Wealth Fund. And actually, she she asked me to come into her office one day and introduced me to her staff and actually asked me to work for her. She gave me a few options. And I said, that's wonderful. Um, because she, I guess she saw that I was so passionate about CSR and, and I had a more a communications background and she saw how I was rallying the team on our events, etc. So I ended up working for her, uh, reporting directly for, to her as a consultant uh, for five years. She, uh, I had a flexible arrangements with, with her and I worked across six foundations. Um, Temasek Holdings disburses about $2 billion, uh, Singapore dollars every 
every year to their six foundations. They have their own boards and teams. And my role was to, 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 to run communications for the, for the group. Um, and so that was an amazing opportunity. So that's how I kind of kicked off my consultancy business. So I worked exclusively for them for five years. And then when uh, my boss there took uh, semi-retirement, she's still a director um, there at Temasek, but she stepped down from the CEO role. I decided to take on other clients uh, and started getting involved in the startup ecosystem, uh, working with different um, startups, some of them smaller than others, uh, and getting other opportunities um, coming my way. Uh, and over the last four years, I've really worked with a range of clients now um, in tech, uh, and particularly in food tech in the, the last couple of years, uh, but also just regular technology companies. Um, I then suddenly started getting uh, involved with impact investing as well and got offered an advisory role with a Swiss group, um, a members group of, of 600 impact investors. And that led to other things, as it always does. Um, and I just joined the board of um, an Australian venture capital group called Investable, who's uh, they're launching. A, thank you very much. I just posted on my LinkedIn. Uh, they're a wonderful group uh, based in Sydney and Singapore, and we're launching a, a climate tech fund in, in Asia. They already have one in, in Australia. So again, aligned with the things that I really want to focus on, uh, trying to find and scale up uh, you know, solutions for the climate crisis. Uh, through technology. Um, and so that, that's kind of the, how my sustainability journey actually continued um, in that way, you know, because working now in impact investing in VC, and I'm also joining a venture building group. Um, I haven't announced it yet on my LinkedIn, but it'll be coming soon. Uh, it's a venture building group called Venture Rock as a partner for Asia. Um, we are launching uh, very, very soon, but they already have an office in Amsterdam. So this is a venture studio, a venture building studio where we bring in and incubate um, amazing startups that are uh, in line again with our values around climate, but not just climate, uh, other solutions around well wellness, um, FinTech, AI. Uh, we have a whole range of, of startups that are gonna be joining our studio here. And there are already many of them in Amsterdam. Uh, to to help, you know, again, find those innovative solutions um, that will help hopefully uh, humanity and, and the planet. So it's really inspiring work for me. I really enjoy uh, the opportunities that have come my way. Yeah, phenomenal. What an exciting space to, to be involved in. Um, and I want to ask, you know, with the climate crisis, where do you see the change going to come from? Is it is it going to be from people or corporations or entrepreneurs or do you see it coming from governments? Well, I'd like to think that it's going to come from all, all areas because it needs to come from all those areas if we're really going to make a, a big dent in our emissions. So our biggest problem is that we're emitting way too much uh, in, to, in terms of trying to keep those temperatures below two degrees from the Paris agreements that we've set, because beyond that is actually the time where the, the, the glaciers will disintegrate and sea level will rise to a point that is uncontrollable. So this is where we are finding ourselves. And we basically have about eight years to try to turn that around. So it's very urgent. And people who are in the business will maybe be more aware than others. But even the students in schools are more aware of it now. I sometimes do talks to, to children. And one, the last time I did a talk, a 12-year-old asked me, how long do we have? You know, that's also the, the anxiety that they're feeling. So so it is really going to have to be around government, corporations, individuals, um, so you know, venture builders, venture capitalists, uh, because those technologies, some, some of them involve deep tech, which are very capital intensive and high risk because we're not sure they're going to work or not or are applicable commercially. So there's a lot of facets in, and I'm still learning a lot from it, to be honest, but it's so interesting. And last night we hosted an investor event at 1880 where we talked about deep tech and we had the professor um, from um, NUS who works on those um, kind of this deep tech IPs explaining to us some of the challenges. Um, but obviously the Singapore government is quite um, forward thinking in that, in that sense. And they are really trying to create this ecosystem and, and investing in, in technologies that will have an impact because we are very, very precariously positioned as well in Singapore being an island and sea level rise is a big issue for us. Mm, yeah, 100%. It is a very interesting space and I feel like we're already seeing um, a, a change and that speed of change is, is increasing, uh, I think, you're right in that it needs to be the action needs to come from any everyone on all levels for us to to meet the targets. 
Um, now, just switching gears a bit, where we have a lot of entrepreneurs that are going to be listening to this podcast, um, I'd love to ask you, what do you consider a good business? Like, what do you think business needs to to really do in today's day and age? Absolutely, yeah, great question, Chris. Um, so I often ask myself that, and I and I know we're going to talk about my book, but I actually talked quite a bit about that in my book as well. Uh, it's not just about my life lessons from expeditions. Um, so for me, the the first thing for any business to be considered a good business is that you're not uh, harming the planet, meaning that the, you're using resources in a sustainable way. Um, and that's a really already a big uh, point that, that is not achieved by a lot of companies. So that is the first one. So it's it's a very basic equation, right? It's like, what are you putting out in, into the world? Uh, and how does it harm our environment? Does it harm... Um, human beings are you you know that talks to the supply chain that talks to uh, labor practices as well so you know so many companies are now trying to do much a much much better job I mean Nike the company I worked for for many years was caught um, you know red-handed uh, I don't know if you remember this Chris but um, they had a big crisis uh, at Nike it was maybe in the late 90s where it was uh, shown that they were using suppliers in Pakistan making their footballs that were using child labor. And so even though they were not a Nike office, the, these were suppliers. So all these uh, practices um, after that uh, time, uh, a lot of companies looked in the mirror and really started to look at their whole supply chain. Firstly, are they treating people fairly and, and humanely? Because it's still not the case everywhere. And then also, what are we putting out there? What's the waste we're putting out in the environment? And what's the and now more and more, what's the what's the plan for when you sell the products and the consumers don't want them anymore? Because it's still our responsibility, right? What happens to the shampoo bottles and what happens to the things that people discard and throw? Um, so it's a it's a sorry, it's a slightly bigger answer. Um, and I know that it's not easy to, for a lot of companies that operate today to be then considered a good business. But for me, it really has to start from those ideals. So if they're trying to authentically and genuinely shooting to try to fix those issues, then, then for sure they're, they're doing the right thing and they're good companies. But it's, it's not an easy fix. And um, it's something that um, a lot of companies now are looking for ways to uh, almost pivot their businesses because they realize that, uh, you know, they are putting, you know, plastic out there from their products. They are, you know, polluting maybe the, the waters uh, with some of the chemicals they're using. So there's a lot of questions right now. And I'm actually speaking to two consulting firms next week about this uh, who are building their sustainability practice because companies are, are, are looking for answers too. They realize that they need to look at their, their whole product cycle. It's not just the, the the marketing and the, the you know that you can put out there and say we're doing this CSR program or we're going to try to you know do better with our packaging. It's not enough. Now it's uh, you really have to change the business model uh, actually. So this is something I'm really focused on actually because I feel uh, again that we need to uh, move the needle there uh, because these big corporations are also part of the solution if they get it right. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I feel like there is uh, very much an awakening across all levels of, of business and, and and consumerism and I feel like perhaps it's happened a little bit faster in, in some countries and, and and I feel like it's a little potentially a little bit slower in Singapore. Um, For sure, yeah. So Singapore is an interesting one because on one side we're still incinerating everything. There's not much recycling. Uh, you know, I'm also on the board of Zero Waste SG, a local uh, Singapore charity that looks at exactly this question, how are we, uh, you know, reducing single-use plastic, et cetera. So we're definitely not uh, doing very well in this area. And yet in other areas, it's become a hub for food tech. So, you know, uh, agriculture and, and food put out about 20% of emissions around the world. So Singapore, in line with its 30% by 2030, trying to produce 30% of its food production by 2030, has suddenly become a food, the food tech capital of the world as it released. It's a, it gave regu regulatory approval for the sale of cultivated meat recently. Um, I also worked with that company as a consultant. 
Um, so they are doing other things that are very visionary in, in terms of looking at uh, alternative uh, to, a, to our current food system, which is not sustainable. We are slaughtering billions of animals that use way too much land uh, that we, uh, you know, we raise forests down to grow uh, corn and soy to feed the animals that we need. So the way we're doing and the way the population is going towards 9 billion, we're eight, we just uh, hit 8 billion now, our food system is not sustainable at the moment. So they're doing some good work around there. They're looking at science. Uh, they're looking at different technologies um, that could de decarbonize uh, cement that can absorb CO2, etc. And yet other times we're not even doing the basic, right, which is Recycling using less plastic, you know, banning plastic bags in supermarkets, etc. Um, but you know, we all need hope, right? So we can criticize governments, or we can encourage them to do more of what they're good at. Um, so my view is, we need more hope. We need more positivity. Uh, it, it has been proven that when you, you're doom and gloom about the climate, the climate crisis, you completely remove the incentive for people to make an effort. So I'm a big believer of that. And I think we also need positive stories out there. And maybe that's one of the reasons I wrote my book as well. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about your book, um, Wild Wisdom, Life Lessons from Leading Teams to Some of the Most Inhospitable Places in the World. Um, I mean, what a great title. Tell us, what was your motivation or your goal for the book? Sure. So um, actually, Wild Wisdom is my second book. I wrote a book 10 years ago called uh, The Smart Girl's Handbook to Being Mummylicious, which I self-published. Yeah, I, I self-published that. It was a lot of fun. I worked with a cartoonist, and it was a book, obviously, about uh, post-pregnancy diet and fitness, not you know how to get your groove back, uh, some personal stories about my four pregnancies, and of course, uh, more most importantly, not giving up on your dreams when you become a mom, right? Which is something that I really you know realized was not easy even for me. Um, so I wrote that book, and it was uh, self-published by an, ar uh, an arm of Penguin called Partridge Publishing, which is their self-publishing arm. And I had a wonderful experience doing that little book, um, you know, and launched it uh, in Singapore. And then basically, after going on a few of these expeditions, I kept taking notes, and I kept writing little articles, and sometimes they were published in the Straits Times about our trip. Uh, sometimes I, I worked uh, for a time uh, writing for Forbes, so I published them there, and, you know, different publications. So I kept a little... Um, folder with all these stories from our expeditions, because in the end, I've, I've run, as of today, I've run almost 20 expeditions. Um, and so when the pandemic hit uh, and we were basically grounded, uh, I had that little folder in my desktop that said book number two, and I opened it up and I said, hey, maybe this is the time to, to actually put pen to paper and, and finish this project that I've been thinking about for a while and really bring out those lessons from these expeditions. So I started writing it. And I had about 40,000, 45,000 words. And at first, I wasn't really sure what to call it. My working title uh, was Empowering the Pack, which was more about the team, the team leadership, you know, around taking teams, you know, on expeditions. And it was going to be more about leadership uh, in particular. And then at the same time, I got a message on LinkedIn from uh, Penguin out of the blue. I hadn't even thought about looking for a publisher. I hadn't made a list of publishers. I hadn't, I hadn't even gotten to that part yet. Uh, I got a message on LinkedIn by, um, by Nora Bakar, who's the, the publisher um, for Penguin in Southeast Asia. She sent a very nice message saying, I see you're a speaker, because uh, I had put that on my LinkedIn that, that I, I did a TEDx before. Um, and she said, I'm sure you have a story to tell, and would you like to write a book? And I said, well, actually, I'm writing a book. And she said, well, what's the book about? And I said, it's about leadership. And she said, oh, we don't need more books on leadership. We're not interested <laughs> at all. So I said, oh, shocked. Well, actually, it's really more of a travel memoir, I said. Uh, it's a memoir. And she said, well, unless you're Michelle Obama, we're not interested. So I, I was like, oh, God. Okay. I said, never mind. I, I had budgeted a little bit anyway to self-publish, you know, because I had done it before. So I said, that's fine. You know, I'm going to go back to my book. And she she didn't give up. You know, she was very good. She kept in touch uh, on message, messaging me. And we switched to WhatsApp. And then she said, you know, Christine, your unique selling proposition is that you've taken all these women on these crazy trips. Um, and, you know, we look at it as a business. Wouldn't you want your story to reach a wider audience? We think that you should focus on your expeditions and you can just make, uh, you know, one expedition per chapter and really pull out those life lessons that could appeal to a broader audience. And then 
I spoke to my husband and he was like, well, that makes sense, right? Plus it's free. So, and it's Penguin. What are you, what are you waiting for? <laughs> so then I actually took a weekend to relook at my whole outline and I came up with the title Wild Wisdom because I had used that on a keynote I had done a, a couple of years before, um, you know, and I thought, okay, that's, it's going to be related more to the expeditions. It makes sense. So I resubmitted an outline uh, and then within two days I got a contract from them. Oh, Wow. Well done. Yeah. And then, and then what happens when that, uh, I don't know if you've ever, uh, maybe you've written a book already, uh, Chris. I don't know if you have. No, I, I haven't written a book. If you sign with a publisher like that, they give you a deadline after that. And they say, okay, you must submit your 60,000 words by this date. So I had my work cut out for me. They had approved more or less my outline. I, I had compressed my two, uh, first two chapters are basically my life memoir in two chapters you know, a little bit like the story I just told you about my, my life, my, my values, etc. And then it goes into Women on a Mission, Her Planet Earth, and the expeditions. So I did that. So I submitted the, the 60,000 words, and I didn't hear from them for like four months. And I thought, my God, I'm rejected. <laughs> you know, I said, my God, they probably read it and hated it. Leaving you hanging. Yeah. And then I followed up. They're like, oh, we had COVID, and the editor had COVID, and whatnot. Then finally, I got uh, the first edit, which came like with a three-page email on how to improve the book and lots of little notes on every single paragraph of the book and how to make it better. And they said, we want you to turn this around in three weeks. <laughs> and I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> it's quite, a, it's quite a, a journey, I tell you, writing a book with a publisher. Um, and so I, I had to wait. I asked for an additional week because I said three weeks is just not going to cut it with everything else I'm doing. And I woke up at 5 a.m. Um, every single day to work on this. And I submitted an, an additional 23,000 words, um, you know, at the end because of all the other work I had to do. And I changed a bit of the chronology to make it more, uh, you know, make more sense. And they helped me kind of weave a little bit. Um, a weave, a thread across the chapters because before that they were a little bit like standalone chapters. They didn't really connect. So they were really good. Uh, the editor they picked for me was wonderful and I mentioned her in my acknowledgements because she really helped me find my voice. Uh, but I had to work hard. I thought they were going to take it and write more of it themselves, but they don't. You have to do all the writing. I was like, please take it and make it better. Can you please improve my book? You know, No way. It's like, can you please describe how you were feeling right here and explain exactly what, what was going on in your mind and why did this happen? And so, so you have to do all the work. <laughs> and then the, it's, it's after that they do a little bit of the, you know, they, they use a penguin uses a, a U.S. and British English. So they have a special kind of combination, U.S. British English. Um, they use a certain kind of grammar. So they do the tweaking after of that once you've done all the writing. But yeah, it's a lot of work, I tell you. <laughs> I'm glad it's over. I'm glad it's over. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Um, well, I can't wait to get my hands on it. Um, I'll send you a copy. I'll gift you one. I'll gift you one. I'd love that. I'd love that. It's amazing you can fit all of the things that you've learned into a book too. Uh, I imagine that would be part of the challenge, right? Well, I'm, I'm still lots to learn. Don't worry. Life, life is a lo lifelong journey, isn't it, And of learning. I, I still feel like there's so much I don't know. <laughs> My God. Totally. Me too. Always learning, always learning, which is a good thing, right? I've got one question for you um, before I jump into some rapid fire questions. But of all the things you've done and all the things that you are doing, what are you most proud of? Well, definitely uh, that's without a doubt. And I, I, I often say this to people, that what I'm the most proud is the community that we've built with Women on a Mission and Her Planet Earth and the impact we've had, even though you know, in the scheme of the world, it's maybe just a drop in the ocean. It's still something, and I'm so proud of it. It's really my legacy, I feel, and my team's legacy and my partner's legacy because it's, we're, it's not just me. It's a whole team behind this, uh, an amazing uh, group of women who have become such dear friends over the years. I have so much respect and love for them. They're my tribe, you know. So, so that is probably what is I'm the most proud of. Of course, I'm a mom as well. So my children are my 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 everything. I have four children. Uh, two of them are now living in London, and two are in Singapore. And I'm so proud of them. Um, and I'm excited about what's next uh, in terms of my career now, where I'm suddenly finding myself in an in a in a in finance. 
<laughs> it's quite exciting. I never thought I'd end up in finance and venture capital building and um, and, and VC, in the VC space, impact investing, where I really can see that finance can be a force for good and can help me have more impact uh, in the directions that I want to impact the world in. It's an amazing discovery and it's an area I'm learning a lot about and also working with really talented people in the space. Um, so yeah, so so that hopefully answers your question. Oh, it does. It does. Oh, it's so inspiring. Um, all right, let's jump into it. I, I know I can't keep you here all day, but I honestly, if I could, I would. Um, so I've got about five rapid fire questions to round out our, our chat today. Firstly, do you have any business advice or mantras that you live by? Oh, definitely. Definitely. And I put it on my Instagram and I often bring it up on my keynotes is we rise by lifting others. It's a, such a simple, it's such a simple, um, quote and I don't even know who said it it's not me it's some it's out there you know in the, in the internet uh, we rise by lifting others it's so true because I've seen it in my life time and time again you know you try to do your best to help a friend to help a community to help a charity you and it suddenly you're rising not just because of the feeling uh, of fulfillment that it gives you but it actually advances you and makes you more successful in life and I feel that I'm living that I feel I'm living that all the opportunities one thing I forgot to tell you is that all these opportunities, and maybe you, you realize that when I was telling you know the story of my consultancy work, is that I've never had to look for work. It's always come to me, and I feel very grateful for that. But I also feel it's because I put my passion really at the heart of what I'm doing, and I've developed a brand around that, uh, uh, you know, some sort of brand around that, that you know, I care about female empowerment and I care about the environment. It's simple things, but they're important to me. And as a result, it has attracted work in this space in some capacity. And so the, the, the quote, we rise by lifting others, I feel I've risen thanks to the passion and the work that I've done uh, to try to make a difference. Um, so I live by that and I think, and I, and I can tell you, Every single one of our listeners, you the more you do for others to empower others, and I don't mean being a carpet, because I talk about that in my keynotes too. It's you be a giver, support people, be open with your network, your your social capital, your experience. But you know, there are people who take advantage of that, right? So you have to be smart. You have to be smart with your giving. It's not just giving and being a carpet, letting people walk all over you. You, you have to also be careful about uh, the intentions of others. But if people need help and support, give it with a generous heart. And so much will come to you. So much will come to you. Uh, I'm, I feel I'm living proof of that. Yeah, I think you are too. And I, I feel also as you get older, you test this in life and you, you go and be generous or give your time or help someone out and you get so much back. And I feel like that's probably the biggest lesson I've had in the the last five years has been how much joy I get from helping others and, and yeah. yeah. And saying yes to opportunities that align with your interests and your values. That's also a big one, you know. When opportunities come your way, you can evaluate them. You see how you feel in your gut and in your mind as well. But also make sure they align with what you care about and what, you know, what are your values. Does it make sense for you? You have to be smart about choosing that because you're going to put time and energy around it, right? So make sure it, you feel comfortable and you're aligned. And then if the alignment is good, you'll be more successful, you'll be better at it, you'll be happy, happier doing it, etc., etc. It snowballs into ripple effects of positivity. Oh, yes. Oh, I love it. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, tell me which of these expressions um, hits you more, luck favours the open mind or fortune favours the bold? Oh, I think fortune favors the bold, definitely. Bold for me means being courageous and taking chances and, you know, not being too afraid to try things that are making you uncomfortable. Uh, and if you don't do that enough, you stay very comfortable in your small circle and you don't grow and you don't, you miss out on so many opportunities. I really believe that. So be bold, be brave, you know, don't be afraid to make mistakes uh, you know, every time I go on an expedition, I'm always a little bit afraid, and it's a it's a it's a good un being it's a good thing being uncomfortable. When I take on new challenges, be very aware of what you know and you don't know. That's okay, right? That's okay. I mean, there's so much we don't know. It's the capacity to learn that is important. Um, so definitely connect more to that one. Oh, I love that. Okay, um, and what does community community mean for you and your business? Uh, community is everything, and I'm a big believer in collaboration. Um, and actually, I've been talking about collaboration now as I enter the VC venture building space and venture um, 
capital space because uh, Singapore is a very small ecosystem. So I, I, I believe in collaboration and community with my nonprofit work, which has been part of its success, I feel, you know, having that community of, of, of supporters and friends and family who have helped us raise money and come to our events and supported the women who come on my trips. But I also see it in business. And community is very important. Um, you know, collaborating, co-investing in initiatives that we feel uh, could be good and could have an impact. And so I hope to do a lot more of that in, in the venture capital and venture building world. Uh, and that's very much my philosophy. So I, as I said, I'm already involved with one venture capital group called Investable. And then another, I'm joining a, a venture building group from Holland called Venture Rock as their, one of their partners for Asia. And so I believe that we should continue to collaborate. And my aim will be to do that very much so uh, in, in many capacities, not just in investments, but in partnerships, in communication, in support for different ventures. Uh, I will try to instill that spirit. Mm, yeah, I love that. And I think it's so valuable for entrepreneurs at every level. You know, there's so much you can create through collaboration and, and community. Do you have a favorite business book? Uh, and we were, I'm, I'm, I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess. <laughs> might be, might be let my people go surfing. We were talking about Patagonia earlier, but. I love that book and I love uh, that man actually. And uh, I'm a huge fan of what um, Yvon Schwinar has done with Patagonia, of course. But there's so many other, uh, you know, good ones out there. Um, Malcolm Gladwell is also one of my favorites. The Outliers, that's a great book. I identify a lot with what he says about outliers, people who are a little bit a little bit on the edge. Um, I definitely, if you haven't read that one, it's excellent. Um, Simon Sinek, uh, Leaders, Eat, uh, Leaders Eat Last. Um, there's some, so many good ones, you know. I have, uh, I don't know if you can see behind me, but all this there is all my library. And only I only keep my favorite books, of course. <laughs> but I have a lot. <laughs> and I have a lot of business books. <laughs> oh, that's good. There's some good ones there. Um, and my last question is at Launchpad, we believe a rising tide floats all boats. Very, very similar to your mantra. But do you have an entrepreneur that you admire that we should invite onto this podcast? Oh, of course. I have many. So it depends on what kind of area you would like to, you know, to to explore, you know, because you I do know many entrepreneurs and obviously I work with a lot of startups too. So these are all founders, amazing founders. Um, is there an area in particular that you'd like to explore? Yeah. So, I mean, the podcast is called Good Business and I, you know, my goal of the podcast is to highlight people who are creating businesses that are good for people, planet and profit lines. So I'm, I'm really looking for entrepreneurs that are leading the way in Asia. Oh, I have somebody for you who uh, who I worked with actually for a little bit of time during the pandemic. So um, she's a the founder of a company called Force for Good, Force for Good that I O Lucy Bennett Bag. She's British, um, and she has been a serial entrepreneur because she also had another business in Hong Kong that brought uh, corporates on expeditions to raise funds for charity. So that's how we connected because we had that in common. But she was doing it more as a business. And she would take much bigger groups and both men and women. So she would take hundreds of people from Goldman Sachs and Barclays and all that. And she's also started a white labeling app um, that helps uh, companies connect uh, their CSR with their employees uh, in a private app. So you, you should check her out and um, obviously happy to introduce uh, you to her if you haven't met her yet. She's in Singapore. She, she lives here. So she's a, a really bright and inspiring leader. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Christine. Um, that was amazing. It's been such an honour to spend the last 50 minutes with you and I could keep going and I could... Well, we should plan lunch and I'll give you my book. How about that? Oh, I'd love that. I'd love that. Yeah, you're such an inspiration. Thank you so much for sharing your story today. Oh, Chris, thank you for interviewing me. I'm really, really honoured. Thank you. Thanks. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Uh, my three takeaways from that episode is how it's never too late to try something new and to really feel into what feels right for you. Um, how being action orientated and having a can-do attitude can just mean everything. And really what businesses need to be focused on now because of our climate emergency and, and really what, what we all should be thinking about, which is how we can protect our planet by doing really good business. Um, I hope you loved that episode as much as I did and I hope it inspires you to create a good business. Thank you for listening to Good Business. Okay, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. 
Selfishly, I created this podcast for my own personal growth. I really wanted to spend an hour with these amazing entrepreneurs that really inspire me. Of course, I also created it for you, our listeners, and the wider community at Launchpad, where we're a group of entrepreneurs all trying, or aspiring rather, to create better businesses together. If you enjoyed this episode, or if you have any feedback, suggestions, or just want to reach out, please do. I'd love to hear from you. You can catch me on email at chris at thehoneycombers.com or go to the launchpad.group website and check it out. Thanks for listening and I hope you leave as inspired as I am to create your own good business.